Well, hello, Pastor Matt here. Just want to take a moment to say thank you for tuning in to this message. We here at New Life Baptist Church hope that in making these resources available to the public, that we'll help to edify the body of Christ at large, and that you personally will increase in your knowledge of God, leading to a deeper love for Him. Go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word. Let's go over to 1 John chapter 3. I bet you didn't know that's where we were going to be this morning, did you? Caught you by surprise. 1 John chapter 3, we are in verses 4 through 10 today. 1 John 3, 4 through 10, the title of today's sermon is... Sin, salvation, and sanctification. 1 John 3, 4 through 10. And that's why we sang those songs this morning. If you notice, there was a heavy theme of our sin and the Lord bearing our sin and his mercy being great towards us and forgiving us our sin. And we want to put our minds and our hearts in that direction this morning as we study God's word. Uh, Before we dive into uh, and read our passage, I just want to, again, kind of give us a reminder of what we're doing here. Our series in 1 John, our time in 1 John, uh, we have titled this series, Tested Assurance. Uh, One of the things that we've been saying all along is in order to have blessed assurance, we need to have our assurance tested. And so that's what we will be doing through 1 John is testing our assurance of salvation against the words um, that John wrote to these early churches. Now, along the way, we've been learning that there was false teaching going on uh, at this time, um, most likely Gnosticism, and these people who were teaching this hidden knowledge, this hidden wisdom that you could have, um, and, and this would bring you close to God without actually needing to just follow what the gospel presents before us, that you just need access to this hidden knowledge and hidden wisdom. And as such, they didn't really put an emphasis on what Scripture puts an emphasis on, on what uh, the teachings of Christ put an emphasis on, on what the gospel puts an emphasis on. As they say, they put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. And so, therefore, they were teaching dangerous heresies because they sounded really good, they sounded very attractive, they even sounded true, and as such, many were being drawn away from the faith. And as we learned, as we were reading through uh, our passage in chapter 2, this was evidence that they were never truly of the faith because they fell away chasing after antichrists. Today, we will see another test Um, quite possibly the most difficult test that we have seen in our passage in our time in 1 John so far. Um, So let's go ahead and stand uh, as we read the Word of God. We are in 1 John 3, 4 through 10. This is the Word of the living God. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. 
No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we tremble at the severity and the weight and the gravity of this section. Lord, who among us can claim sinlessness? I can't. I'm not a sinless man, and yet the task is before me today to speak of sinlessness in the life of the believer. Therefore, Lord, I cannot do this on my own power. I cannot do this through my own intellect. I cannot do this by my own opinion. Lord, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to be here this morning, both to empower this sermon as it goes forth and for people to receive it in their hearts as the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God, not the words of this man. Lord, we pray that you would have your way with us this morning, that you would break hard hearts, that you would soft, that you would mend broken hearts, and that you would strengthen weak hearts this morning as we seek to know you better and to do your will. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. As I was preparing for this sermon, I thought to myself, wow, I could really just spend 45 minutes up here just over and over reading this section of scripture, and that would be sermon enough for us, wouldn't it? Because this is a hard section to look at and to deal with, but we need to wrestle with it, and we need to look at the reality of what, what John is writing here, and we need to... Uh, examine ourselves against the written word of God and see what it is that God would say to us today. We're going to look at four major headings today. That's how we're going to spend our time. Uh, the first of which is not in your bulletin because I just did it at it this morning. Uh, so that's my fault. But uh, we're going to, our first section is going to be what is sin? Uh, this is the question that we're going to ask from chapter 3, verse 4. What is sin? John wrote that everyone who practices sinning also practices lawlessness. But this statement was not meant to sound as a different level of sinfulness. You know, all too often we're prone to think of, well, you know, I might have some sin, but they're little white sins, and then there are worse sins. Those are the ones that God really cares about. But what John is showing us is these are not different levels of sin, this sin and lawlessness. They're not opposing ideals or, 
uh, different variations of severity of sin. No, John is saying very clearly sin is lawlessness. That's what he says at the very end of chapter 4. Sin is lawlessness. Now, we could all pull a Bill Clinton and say, well, it depends what your, matter, what your definition of is is. We could do that here, but we could also, we would do well to just allow the plainly written words of Scripture to speak for themselves. Sin is lawlessness. Thus, to engage in sin, to practice sin, is to practice lawlessness. In other words, lawlessness is not some super, some level of super sinfulness, but it's actually just the heart of what sin truly is. Sin is not just a mistake or a blunder or a weakness. Sin is the practice of lawlessness as it is the utter disregard for and rebellion against the law of God. This is what is meant by lawlessness. Now, John didn't come up with this. He didn't coin this term himself. Uh, Paul refers to sin in the same way in Romans chapter 4, verse 7. Romans 4, 7, Paul writes, quoting a psalmist, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Romans 4, 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. What's interesting to note here is that the psalm that Paul is quoting, actually there in place of where Paul wrote lawless deeds, the psalmist writes sin. Blessed are those whose sins are forgiven and whose um, transgression is covered. Paul is showing here his understanding that, that sin is lawlessness. It is the practice of rebelling against and disregarding the law of God as it has been revealed to us. So these are not different things, this sin and lawlessness. They are one in the same thing. Now, I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. Sin is not just something people who don't go to church do. Sin is not just something that you can get into legal trouble for. Sin is not just something that visibly hurts someone else. Sin is not just something that you have immediate consequences for. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, Sin is any lack of conformity to the perfect mind of God. Any lack of conformity to the perfect mind of God. Well, when we think about it that way, we probably sin a lot more than we would readily admit, don't we? Or that we are more inclined to be understanding of. James uh, chapter 4, he says it this way. James chapter 4, verse 17. He says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Look at that. Whoever knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it for him, it is sin. Now that applies in, in all areas of our life, doesn't it? That applies in, in everything. 
well, I know that I shouldn't be watching this. I know I shouldn't be saying these things. I know I shouldn't be a part of these conversations, but it's okay. James comes in under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and says, no, 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 that is sin. That is sinfulness. Later in chapter 5 of this letter, John is going to say, all wrongdoing is sin. Then you're all familiar with Romans 3.23 that shows us that we're all on the same playing field in being tarnished by sin when he writes that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 10 of this letter showed us plainly that nobody is without sin, that nobody lives a life of sinlessness. Nobody has a claim to perfection. Not pastors, not missionaries, not evangelists, not people who have been in church for 7,800 years. None of these people have a claim to sinlessness. But we love to soften the severity of sin, don't we? We love to make it not that big of a deal. What's really not that bad. You don't have to really be that serious about Christianity. I think what Christian faith can be summed up as is you go to church, be kind to people, pay your tithe, and die well. That's nowhere in the written word, is it? No, instead, God calls us to greater levels of holiness and righteousness. In other words, putting off this sinfulness but we love to soften the severity of sin. We call it a mistake or a weakness or a bad decision. Or we say that we're prone to do certain things. Or we say, this is just my personality. This is just how I am. But that gossiping problem, it's sin. That problem with anger, it's sin. That problem with lust, it's sin. The problem with greed, with jealousy, all of these things are sin. And John shows us here in verse 4 that sin is lawlessness. It is your practicing an utter disregard for and rebellion against what God has very clearly commanded us. But perhaps John Piper captured the sinfulness of sin best when he said, what is sin? It is the glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God not feared. The grace of God not cherished. The presence of God not prized. The person of God not loved. That is sin. 
when we think about it that way, it becomes a lot more apparent how much sin we actually have in our lives, doesn't it? But I want you to notice why I love Piper's definition so much is because every single sentence had of God. Because sin is first and foremost against the Lord. It's not just against your neighbor. It's not just breaking the law against the Lubbock County or the state of Texas or cheating on your taxes, a sin against the IRS or blowing up in anger against your wife or your husband against that person. Sin is first and foremost against God. And David recognized this very well after he was caught cheating on his wife, sleeping with Bathsheba, and having her husband murdered. What he says is, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. And the rest of us would look at it and say, well, you kind of sinned against Uriah. You kind of sinned against that marriage. You kind of sinned against a couple of people. But David understood the heart of sin is lawlessness. It is the disregard for and the rebellion against what God has clearly commanded towards us. Sin is lawlessness. But it is this sin that Christ came to deal with in his first coming. And it is Christ's work in regards to sin that we're going to spend the rest of our time together here looking at. Whereas our previous section in in chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3, shows us that we are to live in an expectant hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ, this section today is going to show us that Christians are also to live in the power of his first coming. You catch that? We look back at his first coming and we live in the power of his resurrection and we live in the expectation, the expectant hope of his second coming. But our whole lives revolve around Jesus. We will see that Christ's work saves us from the punishment of sin, frees us from the power of sin, and places us at odds with sin. So let's move to our second major heading today. It's that Christ's work saves us from the punishment of sin. This is from verse 5. Let's look at it together. John writes, You know that he appeared, referring to Jesus, he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. We're going to learn a lot from just that one Sentence, we could probably just do a whole sermon just on that one verse. But it shows us immediately that all of our miserable attempts to atone for our own sins are comprehensively insufficient and completely irrelevant. If we were able to atone for our own sins, in other words, to make ourselves right before God, to take away our own sins, then Jesus never would have had to have come. He could have stayed in heaven and said, you guys got this. Do better. Be smarter. Be nicer. Be kinder. Give more sacrifices. But he didn't. Why? Because we know that the opposite is true, is that we cannot atone for our own sins. We cannot make ourselves right in the eyes of God. 
We do not have enough righteousness of our own to stand in the courts of heaven and, and declare ourselves clean and justified and righteous. Thus, Jesus came to take away our sins. It is this work, this work of atonement, of Christ on the cross, that makes the rest of this section possible. We, we need to really grasp this, because if it was not for Christ coming to take away our sins, then nothing else in this little section of verses matters, because it would be impossible. If we were still in the state of unforgiveness, without the Messiah having come, or a Messiah yet to come, then we would absolutely be doomed. Do you realize that? Today is the beginning of Advent when we look forward to the coming of the Messiah. And this is what the Israelites knew, is that a Messiah was coming. They had no idea that he would be born in a manger. And as a matter of fact, most of them rejected him. But the Messiah came. The prophecy was fulfilled on what we celebrate for Christmas. But why? Because they knew they needed someone to take their sins away. They needed someone who could make them right before God because they had no way of doing it. Because the old sacrificial system in the temple was not good enough. They needed a Messiah. They needed the coming one. We would still abide under the wrath of God to this day with no hope if the Messiah had not come, or if there was not one coming. If Christ had not come to take away our sins, we would not be children of God, as he says in verse 1. We would, not, we would be just like the rest of the world, who would shrink back from him in shame at his second coming. We would be just like the rest of the world, who does not know him, but just has to invent different versions of a God to appease their own morality. If Christ had not come, there would be none who practice righteousness, for none would be born of him. But since it is true that he did come, all of those other points in this section are true because Jesus did come. Further, the last seven words, he says, and in him there is no sin. If that were not true, we would still be hopeless and doomed. If that were not true, then we'd have to change this verse to say something else entirely. If Christ had appeared and then succumbed to the temptations of the world, then our religion would be as useless and futile as all of the rest of the world's religions. Don Lemon, a popular news anchor for CNN, recently said on air during a program, during the news of all things. But here's the thing. Jesus Christ, if you believe in, if that's who you believe in, Jesus Christ admittedly was not perfect when he was here on the earth. They call CNN fake news, don't they? Stephen Furtick, popular celebrity preacher from Elevation Church, he said in a sermon, God broke the law for love. He reiterates, God broke the law for love. 
But you understand, if what both of these men said were true, if there were sin found in Jesus, if these last seven words of that verse 5 were not true, that in him there is no sin, then what this verse would have to say is, you know that he appeared to try to take away sins, but was unable because sin was found in him. I know it seems like I'm belaboring this point, but we have to really grasp this. Because there are a lot of people today who will make Jesus out to just be a good man, but not a sinless, perfect God-man. They will attack the person of Jesus, and you need to be able to defend your faith. You have to know that Jesus came to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. You have to know that. Thank God that they are completely wrong and that Jesus indeed was sinless and still is without sin because God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Let's look at this part. He says he came to take away sins. Isaiah 53, 5-6 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The first coming of Jesus was to fulfill this prophecy. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or as John said it, he took away our sins. But notice, he didn't take away some of your sins. He didn't just come to take away most of our sins. He didn't come to take away, to give you a tool that would allow you to erase your own sins if you tried hard enough. No, John writes that he came to take away our sins. He was successful. He did not fail. Why? Because in him there is no sin. Christ's work of atonement was so effective that every last, listen to this, that every last sin in the life of the believer was not just neglectfully forgotten by God the Father. It was placed, taken, moved from your account and placed on Jesus. Every last horrific detail of every single sin you've ever committed in the life that you've lived or the life that you have yet to live was placed on the spotless Lamb of God. That's why we sing. That's why our hearts are filled with joy when we think of the gospel. That's the hope that we have in the midst of suffering is because our sins were taken Away. Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You see that? Just let that resonate in your heart for a moment. Think about the sins that you've committed this morning. All of those were laid 
on the person of Jesus Christ. And they were taken as far as the east is from the west. What does that mean? It means that God is omniscient. He cannot ever forget anything, but he chooses not to look at you as that sinful, unregenerate person. Why? Because he's taken your sins and put them on Jesus, and Jesus has taken them away. Praise God for that. But lest we be tempted to slip into some form of antinomianism, as it appears the false teachers of John's day did, John gives us a most sobering warning regarding sin in the life of the believer. Let's look at it. Our third heading today is that Christ's work frees us from the power of sin. Verses 3 through 8. Let's look at it together. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In the context of speaking of practicing sinning and belonging to the devil, for he is the chief of sinners, John goes on to write that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. We can see he clearly has in mind here the works of the devil being sin. That Jesus came to destroy the power of Satan to use sin in a person's life to send them to hell. Jesus came to destroy that. How? By taking our sins away. But further than that, further than that, we cannot be a true Christian if we continue on in unrepentant sin. Do you understand that this is what John is saying? No one who makes a practice of sinning abides in him. That means you can be in church your whole life. You can be a super nice person. You can be the most kind individual on the face of the planet, but if you are in unrepentant sin, my friend, you don't know him. It's not possible, is what John is saying. It's not just that it should not be that way. It's that it cannot be that way. It's that it is not that way. It's that you can call yourself Christian. But you do not know Jesus if you live in unrepentant sin. What does that mean? Don't people sin? Yes, of course, we all sin. All of us sin every day. Why? Because the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength. And none of us can ever do that. We all constantly live in need of the mercy and grace of God, but yet there is still a type of person who is living in unrepentant sin, meaning it doesn't bother them. They keep doing it. It doesn't bother them. They can go to church. The message just hits their ears and falls to the floor. Why? Because their hearts are hardened by sinfulness. 
Because they're living in unrepentant lawlessness. They are living in such a way that says, I do not have a regard for the law of God. I don't care that he says that. I don't think it needs to be that serious. I don't care that that's what the Bible says. I'm a nice person. Sure, that's what the Bible says. But I'm nice to my neighbor. I know that God says this, that, or the other. But I'm such a a friendly individual that that doesn't apply to me. You know what you're doing there is you are atoning for your own sins by your own good works. And my friend, it will not work. Because none of us are perfect. Because Jesus is the only one who it can be said of that in him there is no sin. Only Jesus. We learn from 5 through 10 in chapter 1 that all of us have sin. All of us do sin. But the question is, what is your relationship to that sin? Is it gone? Has Jesus taken it away? Or are you still swimming in it? Happily, without any concern. This statement that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil tells us that this is how powerful sin and the works of the devil are. This is how powerful that it is. Is that it took the Son of God, who is God himself, to step down into his creation and live a life of perfect blamelessness in order to defeat Satan. Furthermore, it took Jesus dying on the cross and being resurrected by the power of God to defeat the works of Satan. And you think you're going to do it on your own? I don't think so. There's no way. There's someone I know who is very dear to me. Who is completely enslaved to alcohol. Completely enslaved. He'll go through times of sobriety and then he'll come and be enslaved again. Why? Because he's trying to do it on his own. Church, no no one in here can beat sin on our own. If we think for a moment that all we need to do is just be a nice and kind person, we are so desperately deceived. And we are in for a rude awakening the second we cross into eternity. Because then we will see how horribly wrong we were. But do you see how Scripture lays this heavy mountain of truth upon us and then says, but God, you can't do it. Jesus did. You have no chance of doing it on your own. But Jesus did it for you. He came to defeat the works of Satan. And you know what? He won. That's why when we stand in faith, of, in putting our faith in Jesus Christ, 
That's why scripture can say of us that we are more than conquerors. Why? Because I'm standing in the victory of Jesus Christ. He won. All I do is lose. But Jesus won for me. And all I need to do is put my faith in him and turn away from my sin. What good is your sin for you anyway? None at all. You're looking for happiness? Scripture says that at his right hand, there is joy forevermore. You want to feel good? In his presence, there is pleasures forevermore. You want to be free? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Everything any person has ever needed in their entire life is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Period. This also tells us that Jesus was absolutely successful. Christians will not be sinless, but we will sin less. We will not be perfectly righteous, but we will grow in righteousness. We will not be exactly like Christ, but we are ever being shaped and molded into greater degrees of Christ-likeness. In fact, as we see here, Christ's work in our lives is so profound that no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Why? Because in Jesus there is no sin. Because God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. He came to destroy the works of the devil and he succeeded. You've all heard 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It doesn't say he's been given a makeover. It doesn't say he's a little bit better. It says he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have been made new. This is what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we are completely forgiven of sin and sin no longer has power over us, then there's nothing left for us to do, right? Or anything that I do in my life now isn't actually counted as sin because Jesus took my sin away. That's what we call antinomianism. It means that I live as though there is no law. And I am free grace. I don't need to worry about anything because Jesus paid all of my sins. Let me lay before you Romans 6, 14 through 15. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You understand, freed from the power of sin. But Paul says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? What are those words there? By no means. We would say, of course not. As our text shows us, this is our last heading. A child of God will not continue on in sin because he cannot continue on in sin. Number four, Christ's work places us at odds with sin. Look at verse nine. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 
Then verse 10 shows us that by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The loving the brother, we will probably just touch on it for a second, but it's going to be covered in our next section at a great detail. All of us sin, we all know this, but only children of God are at war with their sinfulness. Only a child of God hates their sin. After you are forgiven by the Lord of your sins, you are freed from the power of your sin. And you now live the rest of your life defeating the practice of sin. How? By saying no? No, by practicing righteousness. Paul writes that we are no longer a slave to sin. We are a slave to righteousness. In other words, that I am a slave to doing what this thing says. I look at it and I apply it to my life. That is what it is to practice righteousness. And once we are convicted of sinfulness in our lives, we confess it, we repent of it, and we walk in the power of the Spirit. Sin no longer has dominion over you. And as such, you are now able and even compelled to live a life of righteousness. What are we saying here? What's the point? The child of God will not continue to sin. That is, in a pattern, a lifestyle of sinfulness. Why? Because the Spirit of the Lord is within them, and He will not allow them to. So in order for us to call ourselves a Christian, while we live in unrepentant sin, is to make God a liar. It's to say that the power of the gospel has not been of any effect in our lives. It's to say that maybe Jesus does it for some, but he didn't do it for me. No, it means that he has not done it for you yet. It doesn't mean you are hopeless, though. It just means that you're not a Christian yet. But here is the problem is that none of us want to come to the light and confess our sin. But you know what? In doing that, we disqualify us, ourselves, from the grace of God. Why? Because Jesus came to take away sin. If you don't have sin, he didn't come for you. If you're not under the power of Satan, he didn't come for you. If you've never been abiding under the wrath of God, guess what? He didn't come for you. That's great. You might serve a God, but it's not this God. Jesus came exclusively to save sinners. Do you understand this? He came to save people who cannot save themselves. This is our text. People outside of God can't stop sinning. They will not practice righteousness because they cannot. People who are child, children of God cannot keep, will not keep on sinning because they cannot. It does not mean that you will be perfect. 
but you are being perfected. You are being made more like Jesus. So here's the thing. You know, those people, those friends that you have, those family members that you have, those co-workers that you have that you say, no, 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 that's a nice person. They're definitely a Christian. You are doing them a great disservice if you see that person living in unrepentant sin and you're not sharing the gospel with them. But they go to church. What does John write here? So no one who abides in Jesus continues to practice sin. So if you see that in someone's life, the charge is not on you to judge them and condemn them and say, look at you, you pitiful sinner. No, it's for you to have pity on them and share them the gospel. Tell them of how Jesus came to take away our sins. Tell them how he was successful. Tell them how he frees us from our slavery to sin and now puts us on a righteous path. Tell them the gospel. Don't hide it from them. It's the worst thing that you can do. It would be like being on a boat and your friend falls overboard in the middle of the ocean and there's sharks in the water and you say it's okay, they know how to swim. Wouldn't you do all that you can to get them back to safety? Yes, you would. Thus, let's be those kinds of people who share the gospel with people around us because we love them. Let's stand. The one born of God will not continue practicing sin because he cannot continue practicing sin because the spirit of God within him will not allow him to. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. This morning you are either a child of God or a child of the devil. And there's no gray area. But you need to know of this great Jesus that we're coming, talking about. That he did come to take away our sins. And he did that by taking the likeness of a man being born of a virgin. He lived a life of sinless perfection that you were supposed to live, but you never can. He did it on your behalf. And he went to the cross bearing your sin, absorbing the wrath of God that was meant for you. He died and was resurrected and now reigns on high at the right hand of the Father. And if you call upon him today as Lord, the scriptures say that you will be forgiven. We're going to have a time of prayer, and we're going to sing one last song before we're dismissed. As always, if you would like to come forward and pray, you are more than welcome. Let's pray. Let's take us. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a challenging text this morning. Lord, I pray that you uh, would deal with us, Lord that you would convict us and set us free. Lord, that we wouldn't be burdened under feeling uh, the need to atone for our own sins, Lord, but that we would see very clearly that we can't, but that you did on our behalf because of your great love towards us. 
We pray that we would all fall upon Jesus and trust and faith in him. And that we would grow this week in greater Christ-likeness and greater love towards you. For you are worthy. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Grace, peace, and mercy to you all.